Hey everyone, Dr. Bernard here. I wanted to let you know that this episode is also available in video format in case you do need some of the visuals in terms of the energy production that comes out of the mitochondria. I've also uploaded the interview with the actual patient that this case is describing to. It is labeled as a bonus episode in audio-only podcast version too, and that is also linked in the show notes. Also, I want to say a big thank you to all the people who have been supporting this podcast in the last couple of months that I haven't uploaded. I'm trying to find a good way to balance everything so that I can have enough chubby emu content and also enough heme review content. So I'm going to roll the ad now so that the rest of this episode is uninterrupted. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I recently described one of maybe two or three documented cases of someone surviving a dinitrophenol accident. You can find the link to that video and the link to the full interview with that patient in the description below, or in the show notes if you're listening in podcast format, which is also linked in the description below. DNP is a chemical. It can be used for various things. Most commonly inside humans is unlawfully the setting of weight loss. And the question is, why is it unlawful when you have medical publications from the 1930s speaking in such high praise of it? What could possibly go wrong? If you look online in 2021 internet, you'll find references from the regulators saying that 2,4-dinitrophenol is an explosive, it's a dye, it's a pesticide, it's an industrial chemical. And you know, the nitro part of dinitrophenol conjures images of explosives, like nitroglycerin, the explosive in dynamite, or a nitro engine in a car. All of those uses of dinitrophenol are true, but it's kind of using the same tactics that science deniers, or whatever you want to call them, do when they talk about all natural things and how much they dislike chemicals. Sometimes to the point of, you know, they don't like dihydrogen monoxide. But interestingly enough, nitroglycerin is used for chest pain in the setting of heart failure. So despite it being an explosive on one front, it does have pharmacological activity in humans. And the same goes for dinitrophenol. But unlike nitroglycerin, which fills a therapeutic need of vasodilation in context of acute coronary syndrome or unstable angina, dinitrophenol doesn't fill a therapeutic need in that you can absolutely lose weight without it. So let me repeat myself. You don't need dinitrophenol. The risks outweigh the benefit in the setting of weight loss. People can say whatever they want online. They can make as many videos as they want. But 15 years ago, I was in this world, and I never knew anyone who I saw with my own eyes take DNP say that they enjoyed it, or say that it did things that they couldn't otherwise do without it. You could possibly die if you take a second dose by accident. I don't know about you, but I think I'm good. C.E. was a 22-year-old man who was found unconscious in the shower by his brother-in-law on September 3, 2015. He had accidentally taken at least two of his normal doses of DNP. During that cycle of DNP, CE had said that he stopped weighing his doses on a scale. Up until that point, I had been very careful about weighing out my DNP, um, making sure when I took it, but I had been doing it so long, I was getting to the point where I could, you know, fairly reasonably eyeball my dosage because I'd done it so frequently. He had just started a new cycle, but that day he took his normal eyeball dose and then he took a nap in the afternoon. And so I took a dose and I remember immediately feeling awful. 
And so I decided to go to bed. And somewhere in that time period, I woke up and I think in confusion uh, due to heat exhaustion or something was going on with this DMP, I was kind of delirious and kind of out of my mind and not really knowing what was going on. When I woke up, it was still light out. And because I'd slept through the night, I'd gone to bed maybe like in the middle of the afternoon. And so I, I thought I was much further along in my dose than I was. And I, I re-upped kind of in that 12 hour window. He thought it may have been the following day, so he took another dose of DMP as the final thing that he could remember. Now, from the reports that I've looked through, it doesn't appear that DMP causes neurotoxicity directly. Actually, there's an orphan drug designation for DMP issued by the FDA, who happened to ban DMP for human consumption in the late 1930s, but this designation is in some neurodegenerative diseases. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit. So patient CE not being able to remember the events of what happened as he had his DNP accident may have been due to some other mechanism, not direct neurotoxicity. He was still responsive, flowing in and out of consciousness as he talked with his brother-in-law in the shower. By the time the paramedics get there the first time, uh, I'm response. I have no memory of this. Um, this is just all accounts from my brother-in-law. I'm responsive enough to answer kind of the, you know, the, the status quo questions of who's president, what year is it, what day is it sort of thing. And so I send them away. I wouldn't go with them. I was under the assumption that ownership of DMP is illegal. Uh, I was also worried about some other things. I was also very stubborn. So to admit that I was in any, any kind of danger was difficult. And also I didn't really want to in like incur that financial cost of an ambulance ride. And so I sent them away. But once again, I lost consciousness. And once again, my brother-in-law finds me and he calls the paramedics a second time. Now, interestingly about this case, we don't only have a publication in literature. We also have a YouTube video where CE himself recounts his entire case. He describes the social history from his childhood, the bullying, the foray into lifting and fitness, and then the stressors of his father's sudden passing and feeling like he was somehow responsible, then to his girlfriend cheating on him. There isn't really a past medical history described in either the case report or in the video, and CE's recount of the hospitalization differs slightly from the publication in that the report says he didn't have a fever at admission, it was recorded eight hours after arrival, and it got up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That's no joke, and it's understandable that he doesn't remember that. And good thing was that five and a half hours after the first dantrolene dose, his hyperthermia resolved and never came back during the stay. Now, according to CE, he took DMP a second time, and his brother-in-law found him in the shower. That brother-in-law then went to get Coca-Cola and a steak and shake milkshake and found him unconscious again, then called the paramedics, who were turned away by CE and then 911 was called a second time. That could be a time period of anywhere from one to several hours. Then another eight hours passed after that before he was febrile. There's at least another case report where the patient outcome wasn't favorable, who also had a sudden rise in body temperature almost eight hours after ingestion. So how does DMP work? Well, we have some ideas, but realistically, there's not much in the body of knowledge on it in living humans. It looks like it uncouples oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria. So how does it do that? The proposed mechanism is that in having some lipophilicity, DNP crosses freely across cell membranes. You could make the assumption here that it's not ionized either. DNP gets into the mitochondria and into the matrix and deposits an acid. So I have a correction to make. In the Chubby Emu video, I showed the protons being put 
into the intermembrane space by DNP. The proposed mechanism postulates that DNP deposits the protons, or acid, into the mitochondrial matrix. So the labels of intermembrane space and matrix in the chubby emu video are reversed. That would mean that ATP synthase pour is backwards too, and also the associated arrows. This is the correct orientation. The mechanism suggests that the anionic form of DNP leaves the mitochondria and reprotonates somewhere else to come back and deposit yet another acid. The effect of the acid deposition is dissipating the gradient created by the cytochromes in the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. By pumping these protons in, it effectively prevents proton movement into ATP synthase, and thereby halting a major source of ATP production as the enzyme relies on proton movement across the gradient to produce ATP. Now, I've thought about this for a while. Maybe I have it wrong, but it kind of reminds me of cyanide, which is another mitochondrial poison. The thing about cyanide is that online sources will often say that cyanide ion is what binds into the body. But if you look at a dissociation curve of percent hydrogen cyanide in pH, you'll find that at physiologic pH in the blood, at around 7.4, majority of cyanide exists as hydrogen cyanide, not cyanide ion. In fact, as a percent, cyanide ion almost doesn't exist in the body, unless we happen to have basic conditions somewhere in the body to the tune of pH of 9.2, and I don't think we do. And that 9.2 is the pKa of HCN, so it's where 50% of all cyanide will exist as ion, and the other half is hydrogen cyanide. The reason why this is important is because 2,4-dinitrophenol has a pKa of 4.09 at 25 degrees Celsius. I don't have the percent dissociation graph of DMP, but generally, pKa decreases as temperature increases. So let's say it's pKa of 4.0 at the body temperature 37 Celsius. This means that at physiologic pH of 7.4, which is at least a thousand times less acidic than pH of 4, remember we're on a log scale, theoretically a majority of DMP would be an anionic form in the blood. In this case, it would be an ion. Therefore, it would be ionized and hence not easy to cross cellular membranes. So where's that proton that it would deliver to the mitochondria? Well, you could maybe say that the mitochondrial environment is acidic, but it's not. The matrix is slightly more basic at pH 7.8, and the intermembrane space is close to physiologic pH between 7 and 7.4. These are all still at least a thousand times more basic than pH of 4, so I don't know where those protons would come from. Unless the dissociation curve is much flatter, I couldn't find one for DNP. There's a paper from 1953 that highlights the effect of pH on DMP toxicity, and it reads, for each increase of one pH unit, toxicity decreases about three times. A change in pH from four to eight is accompanied by a decrease in toxicity of just over 100 times. That is to say that in order to elicit the same response 100 times more, dinitrophenol must be applied to the test organism at pH eight than at pH four. I'm not saying I don't think that the uncoupling happens, I'm just not sure if this is exactly how it happens. And if we look at papers published on this, they're doing it in vitro, on cell cultures, not inside humans, and so you can control the pH of those cultures. At this point, who knows? Most of the clinical cases published on DMP in the last decade refer back to a few reviews of mitochondrial uncoupling agents, and they focus on the dissipation of the proton gradient. And often, like in the case of cyanide poisoning, one thing will be repeated multiple times because it was published previously. 
People writing these cases read the previously published cases and then cite those same sources. In something like DNP that doesn't have a lot of modern human data, the echoes especially appear louder. But this isn't the only thing happening with DNP. There's definitely other mechanisms happening. In that same paper from 1953 from King's College London, the effect of DMP on oxidative phosphorylation has to do with the stimulation of respiration, stimulation of glycolysis, that is the breaking down of sugar stores in the body, and inhibition of energy-requiring processes. A lot of this information comes from animal experiments. And even today, publications are in cell cultures and the like. There's really not a whole lot in human systems. Just to give you a perspective on the pace of time in medicine and research like this, the stimulation of respiration by DMP was described as being affected by cyanide notably in the heavy metal-containing enzymes. They knew this back in the 1940s. This is likely in reference to the copper and iron content in cytochrome C, which transfers electrons to cytochrome oxidase, or complex 4, in expanding the process. And that's one mechanism of how cyanide works, by binding to the copper and iron in cytochrome C and stopping the pumping of protons in the intermembrane space, dissipating the gradient there. DNP is described as inhibiting energy-requiring processes, and in this paper, brief descriptions are given of DNP inhibiting phosphate intake, which could impact adenosine triphosphate, ATP production. But the mechanism isn't clear here, and I think it's still not clear today. Okay, so the end result of all of this is that DNP raises the basal metabolic rate in tissues. Even today, we have kind of an idea of how this happens from all the different possible mechanisms. They knew this in the 1930s at a high level. There's an increase in oxygen consumption, and clinically, you see an increased respiratory rate, vasodilation, diaphoresis, and hyperglycemia in response to this metabolic stimulus. This leads to breakdown of sugar stores in the liver and muscle called glycogen. Those stores can also hold on to water, and their breakdown can release that so-called water weight. People who have gotten past that stage of weight loss will notice everything start to feel different once their body starts to tap in to fat stores. For me, this usually happens at around week 7 or 8 into a regimen that is one that does not have DMP. And so in the light of oxidative phosphorylation uncoupling, there's people who have given patient CE flack on his YouTube video that aspirin uncouples oxidative phosphorylation too, so DNP just isn't as deadly as CE makes it out to be. Can you imagine saying that to one of the very few people who have been documented to have survived an accident with DNP? It's such a poorly thought out thing to say because aspirin uncouples oxidative phosphorylation in the setting of overdose. So to restate that, the uncoupling happens when you take too much aspirin. You don't take aspirin to purposely uncouple oxidative phosphorylation, but you purposely take DMP for weight loss to do that uncoupling. At therapeutic doses, aspirin relieves pain. When the pain resolves, you're not compelled to take more, but at regular doses of DNP, you lose weight. When the weight loss happens, you can still be compelled to take more. Depending on the person, some don't have a bottom for this, and that's the difference. Oh, well, I've lost 20 pounds in the last two weeks, but what does 30 pounds look like? How about 40, 50, or 60 pounds? It's ridiculous to me that someone would draw that analogy with aspirin when the reason for taking and the setting for taking are completely different. It's not worth the risk, simply said. DNP, as a powder, is yellow. CE said that during his hospital admission, medical staff had noticed a yellow residue from his sweat on the hospital bed and thought that possibly his body was trying to excrete DNP through sweat. 
Staff had to be resilient on this, as it could be possible that by touching the DMP, it could have absorbed through the skin and thus poison anyone from the medical team who was treating CE at the time. Toxicology has to be diligent about this, sometimes in the setting of overdose. This happens with cyanide poisoning, as the first documented case of capital punishment in the United States used a cyanide chamber, and doctors didn't want to do an autopsy after it was done in fear that the cyanide gas would escape the person after opening him up. Most of what we know right now about DMP in humans is acute toxicity. Long-term effects like does it cause cancer are not well known. The damage that comes from DMP is because of hyperthermia. CE's body temperature got up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Other DMP cases, and remember, almost all of the cases describe a fatal case, have documented as high as 107 degrees Fahrenheit. CE mentioned in his recount that he likely has permanent kidney damage and that he urinates often now and every day in the last five years since the accident to the tune of once every 30 minutes. Permanent liver damage is a little bit harder to pick out in a previously healthy young man. His doctors also noted that he could have cognitive impairments, as the hyperthermia could have caused neuroinflammation. Although, in talking with CE for several hours during the interview, and also the associated pre-calls that I had with him, I don't see that he has any problems with cognition. When it comes to DMP, there isn't a known antidote for it. If you accidentally take too much, there isn't something that can be given to you to suck it out of your body, to remove it from your mitochondria. I guess if it's lipophilic, then someone could try intravenous lipid emulsion therapy as a last resort. The theory behind it is that if DMP dissolves in fat, then pushing a bolus of fat into the veins could cause it to suck DNP out of the tissue. But we have no way of knowing whether this works or not. It could make things worse, for all we know. CE was fortunate in that dantrolene, which is a medicine that can be given in the setting of hyperthermia, may have impacted his high body temperature, as his hyperthermia resolved hours after the first dose, and four subsequent doses were given afterwards. There was a publication from the UK discussing whether dantrolene was really helping in the setting of DMP overdose. The answer is, we don't know, because we don't have a lot of data on this. And I don't usually like telling someone to do or not to do something, but I would suggest you not be a data point for this. There's a mechanism whereby we're going to get some data for DMP, and it happens to be in research in Huntington's disease. At least in the year 2021 it is. For inhuman purposes, I keep seeing comments saying that DMP is being studied for cancer and anti-aging. And I hate to break it to you, but it's not. There may be some benchtop research that's happening with analogs and derivatives of DNP, but there's not human studies in cancer right now using DNP. Huntington's disease was also known as Huntington's chorea. Not Korea as the country, but Korea as in choreograph. It's a neurodegenerative disease where the person can't stop moving, that is, choreiform movements, and it's associated with psychiatric problems and dementia. It's caused by a CAG, trinucleotide repeat expansion in the Huntington gene on chromosome 4P and inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern. I don't think we fully understand the pathophysiology, and so we don't have a medicine that improves outcomes for it. It is neurodegenerative, so we have supportive care. Now, the FDA has a program for rare disease defined as something that affects less than 200,000 people in the United States. When things are given a designation for rare disease, the FDA is authorizing a company or an organization to investigate a compound for that disease. Basically, it means that there's nothing good available to treat these patients, so try anything. In Huntington's disease, they tried creatine. 
That's right, the supplement that a bunch of gym bros take, creatine monohydrate. The trial failed and they documented it. I wouldn't have thought that it would slow the progression of neurodegeneration. This is just from me having taken creatine as a supplement in the past. I didn't think it would impact anything meaningful in the brain, even at doses of like 20 to 40 grams. Usually you take two or three grams a day. The trial failed in its first futility analysis and it looked like placebo was doing a little bit better. I've worked on a trial before that failed its first interim analysis and it's a terrible feeling because it's the first time that you're looking at the data and you see it's either not working better than standard of care, which in some cases could actually be placebo, and in really bad cases, it could appear that it's doing more harm than standard of care. Then all of the work that was done beforehand was really just to tell you that you shouldn't have done it in the first place. It was a disaster on all levels. So in that vein, the FDA is really allowing anything that could potentially have a positive impact on patient outcomes in Huntington's because there isn't a standard of care outside symptomatic treatment and supportive care. The rationale for using DMP in this setting is that it could reduce the amount of oxidative species in nerve tissue, but we'll see how this goes. Hopefully well for the patients who end up enrolling on the trial. I want to believe. I want to be surprised. So that's a little overview of DMP. I didn't want to just restate things that you can find in news articles. You can find the advertisements that were out in the 1930s talking about it being a miracle drug and then ultimately getting banned by the FDA with the act that happened in 1938. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourself and be well.